Welcome, everyone, to the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a commercial litigator with Womble Bond Dickinson. And we're continuing our look at the opportunity economy, the economic challenges and frontiers emerging as the COVID-19 pandemic recedes. And we're going to be talking about government contracting uh, today. This is a particularly important topic, and I think it's timely. On Friday, Congress finally passed a $1 trillion infrastructure bill. A lot of people are thinking more government money is going to be available, and they may want to get in the game of government contracting. A lot of people are already doing government contracting. But it's a pretty complicated process, so we are going to talk to you about that today and talk about opportunities, but also some of the risks and challenges uh, in that. And I think a new administration in Washington means a shift in enforcement priorities and regulatory change, so we'll be touching on that as well. Joining me are my colleagues at Wombleborn Dickinson, Sarah Motley-Stone, and Suzanne Beam, who regularly represent clients in government contracting matters. We also have Mary Karen at Wills, Managing Director at the Berkeley Research Group in Washington. Mary Karen has over 30 years of experience providing consulting and financial advisory services to companies and organizations that range from middle market to Fortune 100 to international NGOs. Mary Karen, thanks for being here. Sarah and Suzanne, glad to have you. And special thanks to you, Sarah, for your return visit on the in-house roundhouse. We're excited to have you back. And it proves it wasn't that painful uh, that you're willing to come on for another episode. Um, I'm excited to have you guys here. And I wanted to start with what I I mentioned there in the tee-up, the infrastructure bill and the other things that are coming around the American Rescue Plan, National Defense Authorization. What are some of the opportunities that you're seeing? What does the new infrastructure bill mean? And kind of give us an overview maybe of of some of those opportunities. And Mary, Karen, you want to start us off with with that? Sure. So, of course, um, it's going to take a while to roll out and into, you know, the fabric of the agencies and into actual procurements. But my understanding and certainly have reviewed a lot of articles that have recently been pushed out about where the money is likely to go. You know, I think our aging infrastructure, which includes roads, bridges, you know, telecommunications, not just physical infrastructure, there's going to be opportunities not only at the federal level, but likely at the state level where a lot of money flows through from the federal government to states that may span from engineering, construction, design, um, telco. I think just about every industry actually could be affected. Um, I think there will be a lot more opportunities for small businesses. You'll see other small businesses starting up. You know, I almost think it's like a new renaissance of businesses that are open to receiving federal funds to try and help leverage the growth that they have on the commercial side. So, I think more and more, um, and one of the niche areas that I tend to spend time is with those commercial companies that can expand their business now when they have the federal work, but what does that mean? What do they have to do differently? So even moving to things like public-private partnerships, new forms of going to market to get this government money, I think it's you know going to be a time where you see some creative ways that money makes its way to all different types of firms. So you know, the number of government contractors could expand significantly over the next five to 10 years, in my opinion. 
That makes sense. Suzanne, is that what you're experiencing? I know you help people uh, navigate some of the uh, the regulatory challenges of being a government contractor. What what are you hearing out there among your clients and, and maybe new folks coming in? Yes, absolutely. Everything that Mary Karen said is, is ringing true. Um, you know, in general, modernizing infrastructure creates jobs and historically it invigorates small businesses. So I think we are going to see um, more government contractors or more both existing and new to to the industry coming and, and trying to get a piece of the pie, so to speak. Um, I think it, it will result in a couple of things. Some companies that are new to government contracting may not understand the implications of accepting those federal funds and falling under the label of a government contractor. There's multiple ways that you could end up being considered a federal contractor and um, that require you to follow certain rules and regulations. And not all companies, I think, realize that going into this, uh, especially ones that are new to the market. So it's something to be aware of both as an existing and a, a new government contractor coming into this marketplace based on where the funds are coming from, what agency they were appropriated to, what purpose they're being given out to. Um, all of those things are, are relevant to, to these new opportunities. I think that's a great point. And I do think some of our listeners may not realize it's a challenge. I know last week we ran a LinkedIn poll anticipating this this episode, and I was surprised that we had a number of people respond, uh, but no one checked regulatory maze as one of the hurdles. People were worried about supply chain challenges. You certainly hear a lot about uh, supply chain. They also recognize some of the audit risk and some of the uh, compliance risk. But that regulatory piece is one that I think a lot of folks, if you haven't worked for the government before, you don't realize just how challenging it is and the number of hoops. I'm wondering, let, let's, I, we don't have time, obviously, in the podcast to give a complete overview of all those challenges, but it might be helpful to at least identify some of the problem areas uh, that you, people may not realize apply. Um, and maybe, maybe back to you, Mary Karen, to hit on some of the ones you think are the most uh, either challenging or overlooked that people may not think about when they say, oh, here's here's federal money. I'll help build out broadband. Or, yeah, I, I know something about telecommunications. I don't mind, you know, expanding beyond my private work and, you know, take a million dollars of federal money to boost my sales. Yeah, I, th- I think, in my opinion, uh, the biggest differentiator from the start of receiving federal monies is the whole contract and all the terms that you're signing up to and you're held to, you know, a lot of business in the commercial world is done based on relationships. When you deliver the final service or product, you get paid with government contracting. You know, it's not necessarily this, this whole sea of regulations. It's what's in your contract that you've now signed up and promised to do whether it's a certain level of project management reporting, you know, technical progress, the way that you invoice the government, the way you do procurement, you know, your conflict of interest programs. So having knowledgeable people that can do uh, translate what has been put forth in a contract to what is the impact on the company to me has to be the starting point and is a very um, unique difference or nuance to doing government contracting that, you know, many companies just haven't staffed up with a skilled contracts person 
certainly you could outsource that. That's where, you know, if people like Suzanne would be extremely helpful to be able to come in and translate that knowledge to a company pretty quickly. But over time, the more and more federal money that you get, the larger, more complex contracts, you know, that has to be an area, a center of excellence, if you will, for companies. And it's not necessarily always the center of excellence in most commercial organizations. So devil's in the details in the contract and you have to be all over it. That's a that's a big tip. Sarah, I know you've litigated some uh, government contract disputes in your in your past. I take it your advice is they should actually read those contracts before they sign them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, generally uh whether it's for my uh my, my clients in the commercial world or the government contracting world, um always please do read your contracts before you sign them as an initial best practice. But, you know, Mar- Mary Karen's absolutely right. I mean, the the level of complexity that comes along in the government contracting world is is really significant, um, as well as the repercussions for not complying with that complexity, right? And in the commercial world, when um, when a party doesn't adhere to their contract, right, they're going to face some sort of breach of contract civil litigation matter. Well, in the government contracting world, um, in addition to some sort of, you know, action regarding that, you're also looking at um, a potential false claims issue in which, you know, you could have a situation where, you know, one of your employees could become a whistleblower um, mm. and go to the government. And, and in that case, the whistleblower is entitled to recover part of the, the proceeds. And so it's a it's a very different um you know, heightened scrutiny on adherence to, to contract regulations. Understandably, these are federal taxpayer dollars, but the attention to detail and understanding whether it's the the staffing agreements you've you've reached in the contract, whether it's um, you know where you're going to procure materials from, like by American provisions, whether it's you know how you're going to invoice. I mean, all those various details that go into getting the work. And even in some cases, before you even get the work all the way to completion of the work, just require a, a real attention to detail. And, and it's an area of, of expertise. It's a great point. Uh, I know, Suzanne, they've covered a number of the points you also deal with on clients. Anything you want to add to what Mary Karen and Sarah said in terms of some of that regulatory maze challenge? Yeah, you know, what I tell our clients is it is not an intuitive System. And these rules and regulations are not easy to follow, even for a very highly trained professional, uh, whether they're on the government side or industry. So there's no shame in, in getting help and in interpreting these, because truly, people spend their whole careers and still, to this day, have to go and reread the FAR a million times before they can offer a, a, a reasonable interpretation of it. It's very confusing, and there is a lot of cross-referencing that happens, and every agency nearly has a supplement to a supplement, um, some of which are published and available to contractors, others which aren't. Um, so. The more you know, the more you realize you really don't know in this industry. And it's an incredibly complex set of regulations that, as Mary Karen alluded to, you really you could benefit very, very much so from having expert outside advice and how to comply, specifically on the accounting and financial side, your internal controls, your compliance requirements. Again, these just they're not all intuitive and you may be subject to, you know, regulations that require you to 
to display hotline posters or affirmative action require plan requirements. And these are things that the government isn't necessarily going to bring your, to your attention until they come to audit you and ask why you are not complying with these uh, requirements. So it behooves you to understand what applies to you, what's in your contract, and really what is going to be required to get up to snuff in terms of compliance um, with these requirements. Yeah, I was just going to add one more point that just occurred to me. You know, there's a lot of angst out there about uh, the president's executive order about government contractors having their workforce be vaccinated against COVID-19. And that is a good example when you become a government contractor. You know, if you're a large, primarily commercial company, you know, your entire workforce isn't necessarily going to be working on that contract, but some of the rules and regulations that you sign up to, it's hard to just wall off a piece of the population of your employees and say, well, here's the only people that are affected by that. You know, time charging is a good example. Oftentimes on government contracts, people have to fill out time reports and say, you know, what contract they worked on and how they spent their time. And if you're an organization that doesn't have to do that in the normal course of how you deliver, you know, what your products are, or how you do your services, you know, you've really got to think about the population of people that may be touching that contract and now be subjected to that and other requirements and make sure that you don't forget about the impact on the workforce when you're considering, you know, those compliance obligations. And I say that relative to the vaccine because people are wrestling with, well, is it the whole company? Is it just the people who work on the contract? You know, who is it? And um, sometimes these rules get passed without, you know, a thorough analysis of what the ramifications going to be downstream and all the companies that it affects. So just everyone's struggling with things like that these days. Yeah, I think that's a great point because you may assume, you know, we can do this, this particular business unit can do this narrow contract and it's great. And yet you may be buying into various things that now affect your entire company, everything from the accounting to the time management to compliance with government policies like mandatory vaccines. And all of a sudden you're vaccinating people in a different plant, in a different division, because you're now somehow subject to a federal rule that maybe you weren't before. And so I think that's right. the kind of thing that just requires a really careful and detailed, you know, assessment of what all those obligations are. I did want to touch on some of the other things that people brought up in the polls. Obviously, we're hearing an awful lot about supply chain challenges, and I think that's true for a variety of industries, whether it's semiconductors or food or raw materials. People are having trouble getting a lot of what they need. But it sounds like there may be some special issues. Sarah, you touched on one, I think, which is a Buy American uh, requirement. What does that mean? And what other things should people be thinking about on the, in connection with supply chain as they go forward? Um, Suzanne, why don't we start with you? And I'll invite other people to chime in. Sure, yeah. Uh, as Sarah mentioned, the Buy America Act, it, it basically promotes the use of American-made supplies by imposing a price preference for um, domestic end products and then and construction materials and also allowing uh, limited waivers in certain situations where, you know, it's just it, it's not economically feasible to do that. Um, I say limited because they are very limited. Um, the FAR Council recently published a change to uh, that requirement, increasing the component test in terms of what 
materials that go into a certain end product have to be sourced from the United States are manufactured here, they increase that number, which in light of the current supply chain disruptions and delays and backlogs is, is not likely to improve things in terms of availability. So, you know, unlike in the commercial world, you can't just substitute materials if they're not available, if, if the supply chain, you know, results in long lead times or general unavailability, you're somewhat out of luck if the government says, sorry, no, you cannot substitute for that product. And, and specifically, if it's, if it's not U.S. made, you, you could have a big issue on your hand. Let me, let me ask, Suzanne, you, you mentioned the word FAR and FAR Council. What does FAR stand for, for listeners that may not be familiar? We're not, we're not talking about something far, far away. We're, we're talking about something related to federal contracting. Yes, I'm sorry. The FAR stands for the Federal Acquisition Regulation, and it includes all the regulations that govern federal contracts and purchasing supplies from the federal government and then selling products to the federal government as well. So it basically just it sets forth the rules, the rule book by which a government contractor has to play. Um, in addition to the overarching FAR, as I mentioned earlier, there are many agency supplements that also come into play and apply depending on who the end user is on the government side. And if you're dealing with the military, the Department of Defense, Department of Energy, they all have their own many sort of supplements that add on to the, the rules and regulations that you're required to follow as a federal contractor. So it's it's very broad set of regulations, very it's worth the tax code, I will say. Gotcha. Gotcha. No, it sounds like a real challenge. And I think your point about, you know, the thinking about those and being aware you can't automatically substitute is a, a key point to think about at the time you sign a contract, not when you realize you can no longer find domestic supply. Mary Karen, it looked like you wanted to add something in on, on that piece. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, there's a level of protection that, can't, you know, potential contractors or when entering into a new contract need to think about making sure there's no penalties for the potential of delays, you know, in delivery or completion or, you know, the acquisition of materials given these compliance requirements. So because every contract's negotiated, you know, you have the ability to protect yourself with unique terms and provisions. I would just say, making sure that there is leeway and no penalties if there will be supply chain issues that potentially could occur and be out of your control. The other area that I've seen is, you know, Suzanne talked about potentially long lead times, obtaining materials, especially if you have to buy those domestically and we still have supply chain issues. So finding ways to mitigate any financial impact, you know, with long lead materials, you might have to give a big advance dollar-wise before the materials actually come in in a number of months. And if the government's buying something and they're only going to pay for a completed product and you're left financing for a long period of time these materials that you had to buy on a long lead basis, you know, you need to find ways to have, you know, built-in reimbursement for advances or for long lead items, you know, other creative ways to cover the financial exposure that now that potential supply chain delays could impact. It, it wasn't something that used to be on the radar screen. You know, people could predict how long it would take. They had ERP systems. Just-in-time inventory was fine. You know what? That's all been thrown out the window. Now, you know, protection is kind of the name of the game. Same works on the government contract side. Absolutely. And I would add, um, 
you know, in the commercial world, you parties typically protect themselves from delay, but through the invocation of delay clauses, liquidated damages clauses, and again, you're just not on the same plane field uh, whenever you're dealing with the government. You don't really have equal bargaining power to insist those clauses are favorable to you as a government contractor and that they're inserted into the contract. And then you don't always have as much power to enforce them when, when you are lucky enough to have them. Um, to Mary Karen's point, you know, advanced payment is not something that the government typically does, um, absent express statutory authority. So, and that, that is rare and few and far in between. So, you know, whenever you have agencies like the Department of Defense moving towards fixed price contracts for risk shifting reasons, as a government contractor, you really have to take that into account whenever you enter into this realm because it's, it's going to cost more to protect yourself, to um, prepare for some unique supply chain challenges. You know, we were talking about the BAA. There's also multiple cargo preference acts, um, meaning that you can only bring supplies here on U.S. flag vessels and that exist with both military and civilian agencies to a certain extent. So all of those requirements that aren't necessarily um, subject to just a commercial transaction come into play and need to be taken into account as, as you assess entering this realm. Great tips. Great tips. Sarah, I want to shift to you. I guess, you know, if if we've got listeners that didn't go to Suzanne or Mary Karen ahead of time and or, or you know, otherwise have have issues of realizing they're not in compliance, what what are some of the risks? I know the government has a range of options from audits to investigations to civil proceedings, criminal proceedings. Can you kind of give an overview of some of the bad stuff that can happen and 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 some things maybe to be on the lookout for uh, in terms of some actual, you know, being on the opposite side of a of a V from the government? Yeah, always the nice segue to uh, to the business litigator government investigations council. Once the deal goes awry, let's talk about what can happen. Uh, well, I, I know my colleagues on the white collar crime team were were on here recently, uh, Luke Cass and and Joe Whitley talking about the increase in, in what we're expecting to see for enforcement action against government contracting fraud. Um, and you know, we're certainly already seeing that. Um, about two years ago, the DOJ put together what they call their procurement collusion strike force. It's a mix of U.S. attorneys, some of members from the antitrust team, uh, the FBI, the various offices of inspector general from, from DOD and other federal agencies in which they're really taking a close look at the government contracting industry and trying to weed out situations of procurement fraud which are, uh, you know, potential antitrust violations when you look at issues of, of bid rigging or colluding the market, right? So just like in the private market, you can't say, you know, great competitor, I'll take the eastern half of the state, you take the western half of the state. Um, they're, they're trying to root out similar issues in the government contracting world. Um, in addition, what we're seeing is a fair amount of scrutiny being placed on on joint ventures and on um, general activities that are being put together, you know, in advance of entering into the contract, right? A lot of times you'll have companies, you know, team or partner with another company where they say, okay, we'll, we'll be the prime and, and you can be the sub. And so they look at situations, is there improper trading off? I'll be the prime this time, you get to be the prime next time. 
We also see issues arising when you start looking at some of the Small Business Administration's uh, set-asides for um, either small business preferred um, contractors, uh, you know, veteran disabled, women-owned service disabled veterans, and so forth. Um, you know, just this past July in the Eastern District, there was an almost $5 million penalty paid to settle a False Claims Act uh, by a contractor in the IT space. They presented a bid to the government that indicated that they would be doing 49% of the work and a Section 8A small business would be doing 51% of the work. Uh, well, lo and behold, I think in this case, it was an FCA. So I'm not sure if there was a whistleblower, but perhaps there was a whistleblower. And when the government took a look at it, the company was actually doing 100% of the work. Mm. Um, you know, we see these sometimes come up and, and we'll get called sort of the, the rent-a-vet case, rent-a-vet cases, where a company will uh, will partner with a veteran-owned small business and give a kickback to that veteran-owned small business so that they get that qualification. Uh, there was a, a pretty significant, I think, in, in the construction contract um, of $250 million in indictment against a company in the Western District of Texas in the past couple of months for that. So I think we're going to continue to see a, a fair amount of activity in this space as federal dollars go out. Uh, our enforcers from the DOJ and, and antitrust and, and all the various OIGs are going to be looking to make sure that those certifications you make when you submit your bid are actually following through how you do your business. And if they're not, it's gonna open you up for exposure. So all the things you know, you've know you heard from Suzanne and Mary Karen about looking at the HR requirements, the billing requirements, um, those things you say you're gonna do on the front end prior to even signing the contract, you need to make sure you're following through on the end or else it opens you up to some significant risk. And you know, over the past month, DOJ has been at a bunch of numerous kind of white collar and, and ABA conferences talking about these issues and the message is coming across loud and clear. They're they're here and they're looking at this and, and they want to make sure that dollars are being spent appropriately and fairly. Pretty scary stuff. I guess it's a uh, spooky time of year. We just had Halloween, but that's a good, a lot of good warning, Sarah. Thanks for those. And anything either Suzanne or Mary Karen you want to add to, to that cautionary tale? I would just follow up um, because it doesn't only start once you sign the contract, you know, the, there's a whole stage of putting together a proposal and a bid and you have to hold out certain representations about your company that Sarah was just speaking to. Many of those are actually occurring during that bidding stage, proposal stage where maybe your sales group and your business development group is primarily responsible. It just really raises the bar for the level of review that's necessary on the part of management, you know, before anyone is submitting a proposal that holds out the company's responses that are then going to be used as the lens by which, you know, future behavior and actions is assessed. Because I do see that a lot, you know, as companies graduate from being a small business or being, you know, in the in the small disabled 8A program, as they graduate and they've had these programs a long time, you know, they're aggressively trying to search for ways that they can retain the program even though they've lost that status. And so it does create, you know, a higher risk that there could be some aggressive ideas that could be put into place. And you really want to just make sure, you know, the culture from the top is that, you know, we do the right thing and that. You know, we, we cross-check before we hold ourselves out, and we don't do things just to win the business. 
because that's what the government comes and looks to is what was the culture and the spirit of the entire organization, you know, from the top down. The tone from the top is very important. And it starts in the proposal phase. Yeah, that's a great point. I want to get Suzanne's comment in a second, but it reminds me, too, that documentation of some of these things, like the way you prove some of the culture and approach and stuff is through your policies, your compliance program, your training, all those other things, right? You can, it's too late afterwards to say, oh, yeah, we care about all this, you know, as a litigator, I'm always looking for, well, where's the proof? Where's your policy? How did people know what your culture was? How did you know, how did you communicate these various requirements? So be thinking about that documentation piece. Suzanne, it looked like you wanted to add something. No, absolutely. I agree. Um, that's a huge part of this is the documentation piece of it. You can't just tell the government, oh, I, I meant to or I verbally communicated these requirements to our workforce um, if, if you're required to have written policies in place, which many are. Uh, so that's a great point. And just to emphasize what Sarah and Mary Karen already said, at the end of the day here, you know, it's a different standard that applies to a federal contractor. You're dealing with public funds taxpayer dollars, so things have to be fair and transparent and verifiable, and not knowing or understanding what rules apply is, is not an excuse for noncompliance. And unlike in the commercial industry, you are dealing with repercussions that um, they're criminal in nature, they're civil, they're administrative, and they could stop you in your tracks in terms of pursuing new business, at least on the government contracting side. There's something called the mandatory disclosure requirement and or the rule, and that basically mandates that government contractors disclose in writing all um, situations where they have credible evidence of a potential violation of certain statutory requirements and laws and regulations, um, including the Civil False Claims Act and um, certain criminal violations. So, as industry, you don't just you can't wait and see if something um, a noncompliance or a bad act gets brought to the attention of DOJ and they pursue it. You actually have an affirmative obligation to come with your hands up and, and sort of disclose any potential viola- credible evidence of potential violations in writing to the respective Office of Inspector General, which I think is very unique and um, not always self-serving, but it's a requirement. So, Yeah, that's a great, that's a great tip. And that's, yeah, not something that's going to always be intuitive for businesses to say, wait a minute, I, not only I found out something we did wrong, but I've got a duty to, to say it and I'll get even more trouble if I don't self-report. That's not always, that's not always intuitive. Before we wrap up, I wanted to go back to something, Mary Karen, you said right at the beginning, you said some companies don't even know they're federal contractors. What, you know, that, that's maybe scary to some of our listeners. What, what did you mean by, by that? How, how does this, uh, how can you unwillingly uh, or kind of unknowingly be caught in the maze that we've been discussing here today? Yeah, believe it or not, it does happen. I usually get the call on a Friday afternoon, so if you try to reach me on Fridays, you know, I really screen my calls pretty carefully because that's when all the emergencies arise. But um, typically, you know, sometimes companies get informed that an auditor is coming to um, review their certain submissions, let's say their cost submissions that they're required to produce. Meanwhile, no one knew that they had to put these together to support their costs or to support their billings. And so sometimes it's the fact that an auditor is reaching out to do what's in the normal course of what's put forth in your contract. And a company had no idea that the funds that it received somehow were channeled through some kind of a flow down from either the federal government 
or a subcontract that they had to a prime contractor or to a university or to a healthcare system. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that companies can actually be, you know, included within the contract either by a prime contractor or being a subcontractor or through purchase orders. And um, companies that aren't familiar with doing government contracts may not have recognized that it was attached with federal funds. You know, a Department of Transportation is a significant one. There's a lot of road money that tends to flow through to states that then have certain um, requirements included in their contracts with companies that the companies didn't even realize that it was coming from the federal government. You know, some of the CARES Act money is kind of that way in that you, you didn't realize that, you know, some of the emergency rental assistance actually was flowing from a federal agency. It just seemed like it was coming from the state. So really knowing, you know, that color of the money, where is it ultimately coming from? Again, looking to the contract terms, there should be some indication. But if, you know, you didn't have someone knowledgeable really combing through doing that, you know, review, standing up, you know, what are the requirements once we sign this that have to be fulfilled after the fact and noticing, oh, we, we could be subject to this audit provision or we have to do these reports. You know, it, it happens more than you would hope that it would, but primarily just companies who haven't had experience working with the federal government that much. And I think this Infrastructure spend is going to be one of those situations. You're going to see money flow through a lot of different ways, not necessarily knowing that, oops, somehow it's got its tethers back to the federal government. So really being careful and looking out for that on the front end, I think, is key. Great. That's a, that is, that's a, that's a good caution to a lot of folks out there that may be doing work in an area that they didn't really think about where the funding is coming from. I know we're, we're almost out of time. I wanted to go around and just see if any of you have any final tips, maybe something we didn't cover or a parting word of wisdom. Maybe Sarah, can I start uh, with you? Any, any final tips, particularly from a uh, avoiding the litigation or minimizing its impact that, that you give folks as they're, as they're thinking about their government contract programs? Absolutely. I'd say uh, opportunity knocks, but mind your P's and Q's when you when you sign on to that contract. Good. That's, that's great advice. Suzanne, I know you help a lot of folks with those P's and Q's. Any, uh, any tips you want to provide listeners? Yes, we do. Um, when the P's and Q's are quite complex, you know, one of one of our go-to um, things to do is create a compliance matrix that can be very helpful in understanding what clauses apply to a specific contract or a specific contractor based on the contracts that you're performing or that you're wanting to perform based on your SAM representations and certifications. And then the other piece of advice I would give is whenever, you know, you get a contract as a company and it comes through sales or compliance or whatever office or department negotiates that, also send it to HR and uh, loop everyone in to, to what, who the parties are involved. If they're a federal government contractor, figure out if you're, uh, what kind of subcontractor you are, if you're a subcontractor first year, second year, third, map it back to the federal contract to ensure you understand the full breadth of requirements um, that that perhaps fourth tier subcontract doesn't say on its face, but, but cites in, you know, the last sentence of a 50 page agreement. Terrific. Yeah. Great tips. Mary Karen, I'll give you the, uh, 
the last word here in terms of final tips. Yeah, it, it just when Suzanne was talking about those last points, you know, it occurred to me that really a best practice is to form kind of a cross-functional strategic team that's going to have representation from a lot of different parts of the organization, you know, include HR, include operations, include sales, include legal, and that some training, you know, there's a lot of classes out there that can help raise awareness on the front end. And different functional areas hear differently what the requirements are going to be. You don't want it to only have to come through the legal department or the finance department. You know, let those parts of the organization hear for themselves what new things they're going to have to embrace and comply with. And then as a team, you know, come up with a way that you can combat compliance in a way that works for the, for the whole organization. But I think you know, having cross-functional resources involved from the start, whether it's a project kickoff, you know, a go-no-go decision, uh, putting a proposal together, you know, the more that you bring those parties together up front, the more seamless the execution is going to be on the back end and the mitigation to the risk is a lot higher. Great, great, great tip. All right. Well, I'll remind our listeners if they want to get in touch with Sarah or Suzanne for more specific legal advice about an ongoing uh, matter or some of the P's and Q's uh, that Suzanne can help with, you can find their phone numbers, contact information, emails on our website, WombleBondDickinson.com. Mary, Karen, what's the best way for folks uh, to reach you if they're looking for help? Yep, it's mkwills, W-I-L-L-S, at thinkbrg.com. We have a pretty robust website. I'm sure you can find me. Terrific. That sounds great. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, Thank you all for for participating in a really exciting, a little scary, but exciting conversation uh, about some of the ins and outs of government contracting. And I hope people temper some of their enthusiasm and and get advice going in if they're going to try to take advantage of some of this new federal funding. Um, I want to remind our listeners, you can find previous episodes of the In-House Roundhouse and subscribe to this podcast on our website, WombleBondDickinson.com, or on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been the In-House Roundhouse. We'll see you at the next station.